Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all this morning. Um, before we get started, a quick announcement that the bookstore, our bookshop, that's right around the corner by the parlor, has lots of great Christmas gifts now. And so if you're looking for Christmas gifts, make sure you run in. Our annual Christmas ornament is in stock, but it came in a little earlier than usual. And so uh, Chris Love, who runs our bookshop, says she's already sold a lot of them. And so if that's something you typically get, then make sure you go and get them now before December comes so that they don't run out. And should I make a note of who designed that ornament? Who? Does anyone know? There she is. Dare Gillette designed it this year, and it's beautiful. So, yeah, you can clap for Dare. I like that. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. And lastly, before we say our prayer, I want to make a note that there are two Wednesdays this whole school year. I cannot be with you all for Bible study, one in the fall and one in the spring. And this fall day that I'm missing is going to be next Wednesday. And Ken Brannon is going to be teaching in my place. This is Ken. Hello. And I know he's irresistible, but don't miss next Wednesday. It's going to be great. Yeah. Ken said it's going to be so much better than normal. So... <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to make a note that Ken will be here. And Ken really is a great teacher. And so I look forward to you all getting to know him a little bit better in this capacity rather than in the pulpit. So thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Let's say a quick prayer and we'll get started. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we ask your blessing upon us today. Help to make space inside of us that your word can fill us up and inspire us to change the way we live that we may help best witness to your love in the world, extending your kingdom here on earth. Bless our friends who cannot be with us today. Bless all those who need your healing touch and keep us ever mindful of how we can help meet the needs of others. All this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So today we are shifting in our Genesis study. We are moving into chapter 12, and as I noted in week one, chapters one through 11, it's really the mythic story part of Genesis. These are the big stories that not only are just almost epic in their scale, but they're also the stories that have many links to other stories ancient cultures tell, right? Rather, creation stories, flood stories, that kind of stuff. And so it's pretty easy for us to say those stories are true, but that they were not necessarily historic, that they are meant to impart a truth about God and God's relationship to humanity, but that it's not perhaps the history that will start to come as the Old Testament progresses. Chapter 12 begins to make that shift. In chapter 12, we really go from what would be kind of those epic stories to what we could, I think, reasonably argue as historic. Now, I say reasonably argue because the main character is Abraham, Abram at this point, and Abram is, you know, Abram lived a minimum of 3,000 years ago. Abram probably lived a bit more like 4,000 years ago, but the reason we don't know is because we don't know. They, he lived in a culture and in a place in time where history was just not recorded with any kind of um, longevity. So you may have had cultures like Egypt or Babylon where they were literally etching into stones and those stones have in a large part survived. So we're able to see names, see laws, see timelines and those sorts of things. The Semitic peoples who lived in what is today kind of the Iraq-Israel area, Jordan area, they just didn't do that. So their history was oral, and that history is, we just can't prove it. Now, that being said, we do shift into a phase where there are places and areas referred to in the story that we know exist. And so the story just seems more and more plausible as it goes along. I say that to you because if you've been wrestling with this idea of did that stuff 
literally happen. Like I told you before, you could totally go with it literally happened. It's fine. This is the point at which I personally kind of transition to this could have probably most likely literally happened. Okay. <laughs> So I say that, um, I have a note, I have a note here in my notes that it says, chapter 12, shift from myth to history-ish. So that's kind of what we're dealing with here. It's kind of history-ish. So if you have been slightly uncomfortable with the idea of not historic, I would say this is the point at which we might tick a little bit over that middle point to say, it is very plausible that beginning now with the story of Abram and Sarai that we are talking about some kind of history. Now let me make sure that I say, the history I'm saying is whether they actually are real people. So that is as historic as it gets, okay? The stories about those people are not likely historic in accuracy like we would say. But did those people actually exist? I'm pretty comfortable to say yes, they exist. Can we prove it? No. Can anyone else prove it? No. So if someone says to you that they have proven it, they have not. They have just found a thing that somehow makes up proof. They have not. Archeologically speaking, we've got nothing about these people. So just know that. And also know, eh, it makes sense. I mean, the timeline basically works, beginning at about now, that things would have played out in a particular sequence. Generations now begin to be a bit more legitimate. Yes, Abraham and Sarah live longer than pretty much all of us in here will live. So is that realistic? Probably not. But at least they didn't leave, live 800 years. So we're getting there. We're getting closer. Um, I actually didn't receive any questions from last week, which is a first this season. So any questions pending out there from, I would say from really chapters one to 11, that kind of epic. Well, that was a good softball question. Um, I made the comment that race is a construct. Can I explain that? Um, oh my gosh. Do you have a few hours? Um, what do I want to say in 30 seconds? How about this? You cannot scientifically prove race. Race is a function of perception around pigmentation and is not something that is demonstrably and scientifically provable. So when I say it's a social construct, I mean that it, it doesn't really exist in some scientific sense. It exists in perception. I mean, I think socially we perceive difference in shading and pigmentation. And so we, by virtue of not being satisfied that everyone is equal, begin to separate people out based on perception of color. That happens within particular social constructs. So, for example, when we talk about race in America, that's very different than race in Asia, and that's very different than race in Central Africa. Because we all have different definitions of race, depending on where we are located, that just simply proves that it is a social construct. So that's really what I mean by that. We think we understand what that means and we only understand it within our particular context. And we can drill down very specifically to context being North Dallas or Texas or the South or the US or North America or however you step that up. Race is just a very cheap, sloppy way of defining anybody in any way. Yeah, some of the disciples were likely black, yeah. Okay, well, so thank you. So it's important that the straight white guy does not say, you do not hear me saying race isn't a real thing. So I'm not saying that because it is a very real present reality 
to most people most of the time. So what I am saying is that it is not, it is, it is a thing that we have made up and that made up thing matters in a huge way. But I want to make sure we, well, you should know that it is my opinion and it is the opinion of, I would say most, most general sociologists and um, any, anyone who studies culture to say that race is something we've constructed and it matters, but it is something we have constructed. It is not a real in the scientific sense thing. And so the Bible doesn't really get into what we as, you know, Southern Americans would consider racial identity because that was actually not necessary to define. It was much more about cultural identity. So whether someone spoke a language that was different than yours, most of the time when peoples are divided within the Bible, it has nothing to do with their skin color. It has to do with where they're from, what language they speak, what God they believe in. I mean, that's the stuff that divides people in the Bible. It's only later that skin color actually starts to matter with any sort of significance. We, we noted in here, if it was last week or the week before, Canaanites don't vanish when the Israelites go into the promised land. Canaanites become the poor socioeconomic class within the culture that does the work the Israelites don't want to do. Now, if you were to look at a Canaanite and an Israelite, we, white people in Texas or Americans or whatever you want to say, we would not really see any difference because they're Semitic. But within that culture, they would have seen subtle differences. This is sort of akin to the Indian caste system. If we totally removed from the nation of India were to look at different Indian people, we would likely see Indians. If Indian people looked at each other, they can actually see some physical trait differences between different castes that have developed over time because just like you know, your kid has your nose, it, the same sort of thing happens. And as you refine genetic traits over time, you can actually begin to delineate between socioeconomic status over time because certain traits are either repeated or not. So for us, we look at people in India and say they're Indian. People within India can even though it's not maybe the legal distinction that it was 80 years ago, they can still see really what caste you're likely from based on the shape of your face, the size of your nose, the dist distance between your eyes. I mean, that kind of subtlety matters if you're within that construct, but not to us on the outside. So to that end, the Bible really doesn't have much to say about race. The Bible has much more to say about culture, language, and religion than anything like that. So that, that is an example of a cheap elitist thing that I say that I probably shouldn't. So sorry about that. What else? Name spelling matters. I mean, there are so many subtle things. We in America don't pick up on the subtlety because we are we are such a hodgepodge that it's, it's actually difficult to distinguish subtle differences. But if you go to countries that have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of history with a relatively homogenous population, subtleties matter. Think of places like Scandinavia or Central Africa or you know, uh, Eastern Asia those populations have remained so tight and closed for so, so long that little, a, literally a letter here or there can actually distinguish the town you're from, right? Or the region of the country you're from, or the way you pronounce. We kind of get that a little bit in the way that you say certain words, but even nowadays, that's hard to figure out because 
people move around so much, especially in America, that you can't really get that. But I, I will tell you, so here's a funny, how this made, was made real to me. Um, part of becoming a speaker of any kind is that you have to look at yourself and review tape effectively of yourself doing this. And so one of the things that is just tragic about seminary is we will have to get up and preach to each other and it's recorded and then we all watch the recordings together and say what you did and did not do well. That's super. Um, so <laughs> I kept, kept on with that practice. I watch every sermon I give because I want to refine the process if I can. So there are little things that you may note about me when I talk to you about the past and the future. What you'll notice with me is I'm doing it at your, from your perspective. So when I talk about something that happened in the past and something that's gonna happen in the future, it's opposite for me, but you're seeing it in the right way. That's just one of those little things that I noted years ago. As a speaker, it's easier to do things like that from your perspective. It's just, it, it's easier to pick up and it's subtle, you may not even notice it, but hopefully that's helpful. Here's my point. I hated listening to my voice and the way that I pronounced certain words and I, it didn't necessarily sound like anything, um, but there was some kind of uniqueness about the way that I go up and down in my phrasing and the way I emphasize certain words or pauses or timing and that sort of stuff. So I never knew what that was about. I just figured it was me until one of my best friends from childhood also became a preacher, and he's a church planner up in Boston, and he started podcasting his sermons. This was years back, and he said, oh, we just started this. I'd love for you to hear one, and within 30 seconds, I realized he talked just like me, <laughs> and so there was something about where we came from in that town in central Florida that has some way of phrasing or timing or pronunciation. Now, that is the kind of subtlety that probably no one would pick up from the outside, but I immediately knew that was just how I talked. And because no one else talks like that in my life, like in my world, except I heard that in his recording. So I would say that's the kind of subtlety that we often don't pick up on. But if you heard someone say something in a certain way that was like the people in your hometown, I bet you would pick that up too. Very subtle, no one else would hear it, but you would know, you would know where they're from. Any other just general questions about the first section of Genesis? All right, chapter 12. I don't like that marker, we're gonna switch. Chapter 12, we have three specific Sections. The first is this idea of blessing. I'm going to talk about what God really, what the Israelites may really be perceiving around the idea of blessing based on the story of Abram. Then Abram leaves Haran on his way to Canaan. And then finally, Abram and Sarai go into Egypt. It doesn't turn out very well. Okay. So we're gonna begin with this general idea of blessing. If you look at chapter 12, verses one and two. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Verse two is very complex. And we should parse this out just a little bit because in the grand scheme of Abram's story, even after he becomes Abraham, what is very apparent is that Abraham never receives any of the promises that God makes. Now God stays with him, but God makes these grand promises about Abraham's descendants and Abraham never sees anything about this. In fact, we know hundreds and hundreds of years pass before the Israelites receive the formal, the tangible expression of these promises that God begins to make right now. So God says, I will bless you. God does bless Abram 
in some very limited ways. One of those ways is God stays with him. And when he goes into Egypt the first time, um, and this story of Abram lying about who Sarah is, this gets repeated multiple times. Um, So Abram is not the cleverest person. Um, He is not actually the most faithful person. What he is, though, is a person who seems to just believe God. I mean, we can kind of say that, and I say believe with the caveat that this is not the kind of belief we may consider when we use that word. It's almost as if God, when God speaks, Abram just thinks God's right. That's about as good as it gets. Abraham is not some paragon of faithfulness. Abraham really is just kind of a guy who hears God's words and says, okay, that's it. It's not really much deeper than that. Now, he has obviously become a huge patriarchal symbol for many world religions, but in the actual story we get in Genesis, Abraham's a very simple person who just sort of says, okay. So God says, leave your home. We'll get there in a second. And Abraham goes, okay. Um, That's really it. That's as complicated as it gets. So here, God says that he will bless Abram. And so Abram just says, okay. Then God says, I'll make your name great and you so that you will be a blessing. Now there's a subtle shift here in the Hebrew. We, I think, Our knee-jerk reaction to this, the idea of blessing, is that we receive the blessing. If we think we are blessed, that's about us. That's about something we have received. That's about something that matters or happened to us. God's idea of blessing, though, is much bigger. When we are blessed, like Abram, the real point of God's blessing is so that the blessing cascades to other people. That's the real critical idea here. Abram might be blessed directly, but the bigger, bigger idea is that Abram becomes the conduit through which God will bless a lot more people. That idea is critical for us to understand in the way that the story is told about what God does when Abram lies in Egypt. It doesn't make any other sense if we don't begin with this idea that Abram's just the conduit for the blessing. It's not that Abram himself is blessed, even though there's a component of that. The bigger point is that he becomes almost the the pipe through which all the blessing will flow. There's also a sense in this first few verses of cursing. God says he's going to bless Abram and curse all those who don't. Blessing and curse is something that we've already seen quite a lot of, right? From the Garden of Eden to Cain and Abel to Noah and the flood, there is this sense of you don't have one without the other. That you can't be blessed if there also isn't a reality or an option or a possibility of a curse. So it's not just all good or nothing. It's good or it's bad. For Abram, this appears in this chapter and will continue to go over and over again redundantly, so to speak, that Abram's blessing can also cause cursing to those who don't also bless him. The interesting issue here for me as I read through this How can someone be cursed if they are ignorant? So what we will see at the end of chapter 12 is Pharaoh's cursed, but Pharaoh didn't know. So that doesn't seem quite fair to me. And this is one of those moments, if you read the commentary um, that we have, the companion book to this, one of the issues that he brings up that I think is hilarious is this idea of fairness. Um, He says... Any parent knows that a child will many, many times say, that's not fair. And then many parents respond like I often do, 
tough. Um, you know, is life's not fair? No, life's not fair. Get over it. And he actually says, Paul, in effect, responds the same way when he's talking about the blessing of Israel through Abraham. That when Paul writes his epistles and he vets this idea of how can you be cursed if you don't know what is right and wrong? And Paul's answer is, life's not fair. Here though in Genesis, we don't actually get an answer to that question. Instead, we simply get the reality that sometimes people are blessed and sometimes they are cursed with no real commentary otherwise. So that's left up to us to figure out what the Israelites were actually trying to communicate here. Now remember, say it every week, the Israelites are in exile. They have been sacked, they have been taken away from their land, and the question that they are trying to answer is, why? And how can we keep this from happening in the future? It makes good sense to me that they have faith that God is working out some bigger purpose through them, and that even being taken away from their land in exile is part of this thread of God's purposes. So if they draw that all the way back to Abraham, if they draw it all the way back to Abraham, then it makes sense that Abraham would be blessed and that anyone who goes against Abraham would be then cursed. Because ultimately what they need is to believe that the Babylonians will get it in the end. They need to hold on to that hopefulness that God might be letting them spin around in this Babylonian exile for a minute, but that at some point, God's going to swoop back in and make sure to curse those who are not blessing Abraham's descendants. Does that make sense? Let's look at verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took his wife Sarai and his brother's son Lot, and all the possessions that they had gathered, and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran, and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. So if we remember our geography, I, I don't have my map now, but Mesopotamia is over in the east, and they would have had to have done a northwest arc to go southwest into Israel. All right, so they are effectively at the top of the arc when they're in Haran, and so they will be traveling southwest down into Israel or into Canaan, same place. Promised land, Israel, Canaan, all the same land. So Israel is going to be the place where Abram ultimately lands after he leaves Haran. So, as I noted earlier, God says, go. Abram says, okay. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Abram goes down into Canaan, and when Abram lands at the oak of Morah, Abram stops and God appears to him. And because God appears to him, he builds an altar in worship. We have noted thus far in Genesis that there is an immediate response to God by worshiping. Whether that was in Eden, outside of Eden, after the flood, whenever God appears in some way, is present in some real way, the immediate response is to worship. Abram does the same thing here. God appears to him, Abram builds an altar, and worships. It is important to note that altars are not churches. Altars are not sanctuaries. These are not buildings. They are meant to be temporary. Altars are meant to do a job and then move on. Abram is nomadic. He's moving all around, which is part of the problem for us in archaeological sense of proving his existence. He just kept moving. And so what he begins now is what we could call a grand tour of Canaan. He moves from here to there to there to there. And as he moves, God appears to him along the way. And each time he moves and God appears, he worships. So 
If we look at verse 7, when God appeared to Abram, he also made a promise. This is the first of a series of promises. To your offspring, I will give this land. I kind of imagine that scene in The Lion King where Simba looks out over the pride lands. He says, everything the light touches is yours. It's kind of one of those moments where God is saying, look, Abram, all of this is going to be given to your descendants. But as I noted earlier, Abram doesn't get it. And we will see that really it doesn't happen for hundreds of years. But that promise is rooted hundreds and hundreds of years before Joshua actually takes the Israelites into the promised land from Egypt. So it's made, but it will be realized in the distant future. So look at verse 8. From there, Abram moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And then Abram journeyed on by stages toward the Negev. Abram is moving around the country and every time he stops, God appears and he worships. But Abram is actually moving south. So if you can imagine, I don't know if I've said it this year or not, Israel is like a parfait. The north of Israel is lush and green and wet and can grow lots of good stuff. The middle part of Israel is moderate, and so you need a hardy plant that doesn't need a lot of water. That's where you get olives and rosemary and things like that right in the middle. The southern part of Egypt is effectively a desert. That is the Negev. We see in these verses that Abram is basically moving south into the Negev. Why in the world is he going to the desert? He's walking through these beautiful areas, south and central. I mean, I'm sorry, north and central, down to the south. The answer is probably functional. Other people live there. So Abram, God may have told Abram to go down to Canaan, but the people living in Canaan are going to say, get out of our land. And so Abram is likely having to move around as he's searching for some land. So all he heard was, go to Canaan. And he's likely trying to make it work. But as we know, water matters. So you're certainly not going to take a water source away from someone who has anchored themselves around it, whether that's a well or a river or anything. So he's likely having to move from the really nice area to the decent area to the no one wants to live there area. And so as he goes down to the Negev, he's effectively going out to find land no one wants. The reason no one wants that land is because it's very risky to live there. There's not enough water, very dependent on rain. And in that area of the country, rain is very sparse. And so if he's, even if he's herding animals and not growing crops, just watering his animals is risky in that area. Let's also talk for a minute before we press on. Abram doesn't really know much about God at this point. Uh, let, me, let me say that differently. We have no reason to assume Abram knows anything about Yahweh at this point. Abram was just a member of the household that moved from Ur up to Haran. All we get with Abram is God appeared and said go. We know nothing about what Abram knows or doesn't know about God. However, at this point in time, gods are always anchored to a place. We know from ancient mythology and other religious groups that God would be located in a certain place. The idea that sort of God is everywhere, that's not really the case. God's gods are located 
in certain places that are perceived of as holy, right? We know places like the, um, the Oracle of Delphi and places like that that were marked as something spiritual and a thin place where God was present in a way that God was not present in other places. And by God, when I'm saying this, I'm really meaning like little g gods. Everywhere had a little god some doing something somewhere. So for Abram, what is interesting about this story is that God's appearing to him in multiple different geographic locations. If we don't acknowledge that what is really happening here is that God is bigger than any one place, we're kind of missing the point. We might read the story and think, sure, God's going with Abram, just like God goes with us. Like if we want to go out to LA for a weekend, you know, it's not like God leaves us because we made a trip. In the ancient world, this would have been very unusual. Typically, as people travel around and experience God in some real way, they mark that place and they build an altar, build a sanctuary, build something to say, God is right there. We will see, well, actually, we won't hear for Genesis, but in Exodus, one of the important ideas around what it means to be Jewish is that in the temple, in the tent where the ark is, God is literally touching the earth. And as they move the ark all around the wilderness, they will ultimately take the ark into the promised land. And then David, part of what makes David the great king is that he actually brings the ark to Jerusalem. And then his son Solomon builds a temple around the ark. The temple is not just the pretty church or the biggest church. The temple is the church because that's where God is. What happens in the grand ark of Judaism is that this temple is destroyed twice. The first time the temple is destroyed is when they go into exile and they've got to ask the question, what do we do now without the temple? But they will ultimately go back and rebuild it and that second temple is bigger, better, in the same place. That temple is destroyed in 70 CE. So 70, couple decades after Jesus' death and resurrection. Then we get the diaspora, and the Jews are spread all over the Roman Empire. Without a temple, Jews have to ask the question, how do we worship God? And it's only after the second temple is destroyed that we get the rise of what we know of as synagogue worship. That wasn't really a thing when there was a temple, but it became necessary when the temple was gone. So that's kind of a tangent. All that is important because Abram in this story is establishing that Yahweh God is not like the other gods that Yahweh God is all over the place, not anchored to any one place, but present with the faithful people. And that's a massive shift in understanding the way that God works. Any questions about that? All right, then let's go to Egypt. Look at verse 10. I'm gonna read through this just because it's a good story. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down. Remember, he's in the Negev, he's in the desert, so there's a famine in the land, not a surprise. He's not living in a good place. So there's a famine in the land, in the Negev. So Abram went down to Egypt to reside there as an alien, for the famine was severe. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know well that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me but they will let you live. Say instead that you are my sister, so that I might go well for me because of you, and that my life may be spared on your account. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. When the officials of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had heart, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female slaves, female donkeys, and camels. Verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, 
Take her and be gone. And Pharaoh gave his men orders concerning him, and they set him on his way with his wife and all that he had. Let me summarize the story. Sarah's pretty, and when your wife is pretty, men who are more authoritative, stronger than you, could kill you to get your wife. That is the premise of this story. Abram is not as strong as Pharaoh, and so he says, rather than making me a target, let's just give you to them, and so I'll be okay. I mean, that's really what happens, right? So they go into Egypt, Sarah's really pretty, And so Pharaoh takes her into his house, which is effectively into his harem, right? We know how this works. There are just people, you are ancient cultures, many of them defined strength by genetic, uh, having lots of children, passing on your seed, so to speak. And so there would have been many, many, many women who would have had many children by Pharaoh in Egypt. And so Sarai would just have been put in that harem, so to speak. Wife is used a little loosely here. So Sarai's gone, and because of that, Abram was effectively paid for her. So if you can imagine, husband, wife, husband gets killed for wife. Brother, sister, brother gets paid for sister. And so Sarai goes, and Abram gets paid. And he gets paid in livestock, basically. So we, we get this. This is not a surprise. This is a very ancient custom where women are bought and sold. And that's effectively what happens in the story. Except God blessed Abram. So the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house, caused plagues upon Pharaoh and his house in order to free Sarai. And so Sarai is freed because of the plagues, and Abram gets to take Sarai back to Canaan. What does that sound like? If you don't think Moses, you're not paying attention. So this is a foreshadowing of what will happen so that that story is a story they know. If you... Put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. Why in the world, if your entire reality is as a slave, no education, no concept of the world outside your doors, simply working to survive, would you ever think that some random guy named Moses could do anything for you? Well, this. They know this story. They know the story of God sending a plague on Pharaoh in order to free those who are unrighteously held. And so that story becomes the construct around what will be the Exodus. So this begins a story that will actually rotate and... That's not my voice, is it? Sounded British, go from your country. Okay. So, so what's happening in this moment makes sense in the context of what we know will come with the Israelites, right? That Exodus moment will come. They're telling the story in a very particular way to set the stage for the story they know has already happened. Remember, they're writing this in the exile. Moses and the Exodus was way, hundreds and hundreds of years before the exile. So they are creating a thread that makes logical sense, narrative sense, and connects over time. If we take the story without that context, it could be a little problematic. It makes sense that Abram needs to go to Egypt in a famine. We'll start there. Abram has been effectively pushed out to the land that is difficult. So famine is a risk all the time in that area, in that Negev area. And so the fact that famine hits is not a surprise. Abram goes to the nearest big country, Egypt, 
in order to just survive. And remember, this is not Abram and his three family members. You're talking about someone like Abram could effectively have dozens, if not hundreds of people sort of working in his employ, right? And not tribe is not the right word, but effectively in his household. So he's got a lot of people to support. And so they all go over to Egypt and Sarai is just too pretty. Abram's mistake means that Pharaoh gets punished. That is not fair. Pharaoh has no idea, right? These two people walk in the door, brother, sister, sister's pretty, pays brother for sister, like that's good. I mean, that's the way it works. And so what in the world did Pharaoh do to deserve the plagues? In a very similar way, the Exodus story should beg the question, why does God punish Pharaoh? Why even more so does God harden Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh resists what Moses tries to do? This is a story that plays out over and over and over again. I bring it up to you because I want you to think critically about the benefit of telling a story this way. Like I've said many times, the best question is not, why did God do that? The best question is, why did people think God did that? I don't believe it is a stretch for us to understand that the Israelites would want the story told this way. It allows them to be the righteous ones. It allows them to be the ones that God likes the most. It allows them to demonize the Egyptians in the same way that they are trying to demonize the Babylonians, who are their captors at this point. All of that makes good sense to me. What I want for you to consider is how changing the perspective of that story might change the depth of your own faith. How do we tell stories now in ways that actually benefit us, even if they're not demonstrably or factually accurate? We tell a story in a certain way in order to actually reach a particular conclusion that is helpful for us. That's the same way that the Israelites are doing here. Let me see. One other idea. Abram goes to Egypt. He makes a mistake. Pharaoh gets punished for it. Not fair, yes, but Abram's mistake, Abram's sin is one that is his, but the collateral damage hits Pharaoh. I think this story pokes at a pretty profound truth that we can all make mistakes. And yes, we can actually receive the punishment for those mistakes sometimes. But how often do the mistakes we make actually not really affect us that much, but really negatively affect other people around us? We may be the recipient of collateral damage, other people making mistakes, and us receiving the brunt of that damage for their choices. There is something about the way in which the story is told that has a relatively true construct. Our choices are not made in a vacuum. And the results of our choices, especially bad choices, are not made in a vacuum. So as Abram makes a bad choice, Abram brings about a curse to Pharaoh. But the flip side is also true. As Abram, as Abram does the right thing, he becomes a blessing, not only him, but he magnifies that blessing to other people as well. And I just think that's a truth for all of us. If we actually receive God's blessing, it's not just for us, it's never just for us. We then become the way in which God blesses other people around us. The flip is true as well. And that's part of our discipleship, 
is that we try best we can to make the best choices, the most faithful choices, not just for ourselves, but for everyone around us who receives that collateral. And hopefully the collateral that people receive around us is a blessing and not a curse. <laughs> is that just heavy? So knowing that the luncheon is, is happening shortly, I'd like to end in maybe two minutes. Any question or comment about chapter 12 before we jump out? Yes. Oh, I see. Okay, yes, that's right. So if we read this... Yes, I'll repeat the question. So there's no evidence to show how Pharaoh figured out that Abram was the cause of the plague. You're right. I, I suppose, I suppose uh, my response to you would be that Pharaoh is not really the point of the story. What we get over these next few chapters, what you will find when we look at Genesis is we have these, these four patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Isaac's story is almost non-existent. Isaac really doesn't do anything that isn't directly related to either Abraham or Jacob. Um, I, Isaac is, is really the, the inconsequential patriarch of those four. I think that Abraham, along with Jacob and Joseph, the point of their stories is the way that they do and do not respond to God every step of the way. And so I think the point here is that Abraham... Abram at this point, Abram gets another chance. We can read this story and feel kind of bad for Pharaoh. I mean, poor guy, right? I mean, he, maybe we don't like the social construct of buying women. I mean, I hope we don't. Um, but in, within context, I mean, Pharaoh is just kind of doing, doing it the right way or the way that he does it. And so for us, we can pretty quickly say that Pharaoh isn't, does not deserve the punishment. However, Pharaoh's punishment is certainly not the point of the story. The point of the story is that Abram made a bad choice and that Abram gets a second chance. What we will see is that Abram makes this mistake multiple more times, and not even kind of the same mistake. He'll make the same mistake. It is sort of ridiculous. Um, and so what do we do with redundancy and repetition of mistakes? I think a good way to read this is that God doesn't let us go. You know, in the story of Noah, grace found Noah. Noah didn't deserve the grace that he received. And in the same way, Abram, maybe even more so, does not deserve the grace and the blessing that he receives from God, yet God blesses anyway. God gives him another chance anyway. And to me, that's probably the best of this story. And we'll keep repeating that idea over and over and over again. All right, everyone. I won't see you again, so happy Thanksgiving, and I will see you in December. Thanks. Thank